Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called, My Spirit Remains Among You, The Divine Presence in the Dust and Dirt of Our Lives. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, November 7th, 2010. The Old Testament reading this week comes from Haggai. Next to Obadiah, it's the shortest book in the Old Testament, barely two pages in my Bible. How did this scrap of a manuscript ever survive the ravages of time and chance so that, so that we still read it 2,500 years later? But I'm glad that it did survive, because whereas our churches and culture boast that bigger is better and that size matters, Haggai says that God operates differently. Along with Zechariah and Malachi, Haggai is one of the three post-exilic prophets. As their name suggests, the post-exilic prophets ministered to a demoralized remnant that had returned to the ruins of Jerusalem after 70 years of exile in Babylon. At this point in their history, the displaced Jews were an insignificant footnote to the geopolitics of the day. The headlines back then featured the fall of Babylon and the rise of Persia, the two global powers that subjugated the leftovers of what used to be the nation of Israel. A beleaguered remnant of Jews had lived in Babylonian exile for about 50 years when the tectonic plates of history shifted. Way back on October 13, 539 BC, Cyrus the Great of Persia conquered the Babylonian king Nabonidus in the Battle of Opsis on the Tigris River, near modern-day Baghdad. Cyrus later issued a decree in 536 BC that allowed Jews to return to Jerusalem in order to resettle their lands and to rebuild their ruined temple. Some exiles did return, but in truth, life was probably better back in Babylon. The good news, of course, was the possibility of repatriation, but the bad and bitter news was what the exiles found in Jerusalem. Reconstruction of the ravaged temple had begun in 534 BC, but the effort fizzled out and ground to a halt according to the book of Ezra, chapter 3, 8, and 424. Perhaps even back then there was a post-traumatic stress syndrome triggered by returning to the scene of a national tragedy. Everywhere they looked, only vivid reminders of the catastrophe of war for the losers. Maybe bitterness, resignation, and demoralization undermine good intentions. It's easy to imagine that a lack of skilled labor, imperfect working conditions, insufficient building materials, and underfunded budgets stymied the progress. A generation had grown up in Babylon who knew nothing of the former splendor of Solomon's temple. And in fact, for some younger people who returned, their exilic experience of Judaism involved no temple at all. But then history moved on. 
And in 529 BC, Cyrus died. His successor, King Darius, reissued the building edict about 14 years later, and restoration of the Jerusalem temple began anew. This so-called second temple, as it is still called today, was finished in the year 515 BC. As you would expect, some Jews who were still living then compared the restored second temple with Solomon's original temple. The verdict was inevitable and predictable. We read in Haggai chapter 2 verse 3, Who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? Compared to Solomon's temple, the second temple was a meager, pale imitation, and everyone knew it. That much was true. Temple rituals that had long been neglected and that were unfamiliar to a new generation led to religious defilements of all sort. Haggai chapter 2, verses 10 and following. But Haggai insisted that God was every bit as present in the modest second temple under the Persian ruler Darius as he had been in the extravagant temple under King Solomon of Israel, or for that matter, under the oppressive regime of King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon when there was no temple at all. The repatriated exiles had to start over. They had to revise their judgments about the modest restoration project and what it did and did not signify about the presence of God in their community. They had to accept their meager circumstances with brutal realism, even as they worked hard to overcome them. They also had to maintain their confidence in the word that God had spoken to them through Haggai. He said, Be strong, all you people of the land, and work. Rebuild, for I am with you, declared the Lord Almighty. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains among you. Do not fear. Despite the outward circumstances, I will bless you, and the glory of the second temple will outshine the splendor of the first temple. Whether in victorious exodus out of Pharaoh's Egypt, humiliating exile to Nebuchadnezzar's pagan Babylon, or post-exilic return to the ruins of Jerusalem, under the Persian rulers Cyrus and Darius. In all of these, God was present among his people. Most of us experience our share of reversal, exile, defeat, destruction, and catastrophe. Sometimes enemies do this to us, but other times we do this to ourselves. Often there's no apparent reason at all our health, our checkbooks, our jobs and families all include defeats of various sorts, whether a slight skirmish or wholesale devastation. The outward circumstances of our lives can feel harsh beyond measure and threaten to diminish our vision.
Does it not seem like nothing? Asked Haggai about the restored temple in chapter 2, verse 3. And yet God speaks to us today through Haggai's ancient promise. I am with you. Do not fear. My spirit remains among you. There can be greater glory in your lesser circumstances. In his poem by the title Revival, the Welsh poet-physician Henry Vaughan, 1621-1695, reminds us that even in the dust and dirt of our lives, the lilies of God's love still bloom. Listen to the poem Revival by Henry Vaughan. Unfold, unfold, take in his light, who makes thy cares more short than night. The joys which with his day star rise, he deals to all but drowsy eyes. And what the men of this world miss, some drops in dews of future bliss. Hark how his winds have changed their note, and with warm whispers call thee out. The frosts are past, the storms are gone, and backward life at last comes on. The lofty groves in expressed joys reply unto the turtle's voice, and here in dust and dirt, oh, hear the lilies of his love appear. Haggai says that God meets us where we are, not where we wish we could be, even and especially in downsized circumstances like a rebuilt temple in a ravaged Jerusalem. His spirit moves even when we might not see or feel his presence. When we least expect it, in the dust and dirt of our lives, God says in Haggai 2.19, From this day on, I will bless you. For books this week, I review Ayan Hirsi Ali, Nomad, From Islam to America, A Personal Journey Through the Clash of Civilizations. New York, The Free Press, 2010, 277 pages. In this follow-up to her 2007 bestseller called Infidel, Ayan Hirsi Ali combines compelling personal storytelling about repudiating Islam with more controversial political analysis about whether Muslims can embrace modernity. Ali was born in Somalia, moved to Saudi Arabia when she was eight, fled to Ethiopia when her family was expelled from there, then moved again to Kenya. During all those years, she was a pious Muslim, but when her father forced her into an arranged marriage with a distant cousin she had never met, she fled to Germany, and then in 1992, she gained asylum in Holland. In Holland, Ali learned Dutch, went to college, became an interpreter at abortion clinics, schools, prison, courts, and sheltered for battered women, 
and most improbably, became a member of the Dutch Parliament. After significant controversies in Holland, she moved to the United States and took a post at the American Enterprise Institute. Ali identifies herself as an atheist, an outspoken critic of Islam, and an enthusiastic proponent of the political legacy of the secular enlightenment. She has very harsh words for multiculturalists, for self-censorship, and politically correct politeness that refuses to criticize Islamic practices like honor killings and female genital mutilation, all in the name of religious or cultural parody. College campuses, she says, are the worst in this regard. She writes, all human beings are equal, but all cultures and religions are not equal. A culture that celebrates femininity and considers women to be the masters of their own lives is better than a culture that mutilates girls' genitals and confines them behind walls and veils or flogs or stones them for falling in love. To criticize Islam, she says, is not to defame all Muslims. What's not clear in Ali's book is the extent to which she thinks that Muslims, particularly those from nomadic tribal cultures, can integrate into Western societies. On the one hand, she rejects the patronizing defeatist approach that is hopeless. We shouldn't imply that Muslims are incapable of growth and adaptation. She writes, I can't think of anything more pejorative and racist. But on the other hand, she writes that Islam is quote-unquote fatally flawed and that you can be both Muslim and America only if you don't care very much about being Muslim. She thus concludes, I believe it would be a grave mistake to be complacent about Islam in America. Ayan Hirsi Ali's voice of experience can be powerful but her extrapolations of political generalizations from those experiences need more careful nuance. The title of the book is Nomad, Ayan Hirsi Ali. For film this week, I review Restrepo from the year 2010. Many films have been made about war this one was shot in the midst of war. Directors Sebastian Junger and Tim Hetherington took their cameras to the breathtakingly beautiful but deadly Karangal Valley of remote Afghanistan between May 2007 and July 2008. There they were embedded with the 2nd Platoon Battle Company, 173rd Airborne Brigade, on their 15-month deployment. The result is an unsparing, and I have to say, non-political documentation of war. About 800 meters up the mountainous slopes from their base camps, the Americans built an outpost named Camp Restrepo, after Juan S. Restrepo, who died at the age of 20 in an earlier deployment there. Exactly what the American forces hoped to accomplish there is never at all clear. 
a point that's accentuated by interviews with the soldiers that are interspersed throughout the film. This ambiguity and futility of their mission is further underscored when at the end of the film we learn that Americans abandoned the post on April 10th, 2010. One word of warning. This film contains graphic images of the violence of war for the Americans, their enemies, and the local citizens. The title of the film, Restrepo. And finally, in keeping with the season of political elections, this week we've posted a poem by William Butler Yeats, 1865 to 1939. The title of the poem is Politics. There's an introductory quote by Thomas Mann. In our time, the destiny of man presents its meaning in political terms. The title of the poem, Politics, by William Butler Yeats. How can I, that girl standing there, my attention fix on Roman or on Russian or on Spanish politics? Yet here's a traveled man that knows what he talks about, and there's a politician that has both read and thought, and maybe what they say is true of war and war's alarms. But oh, that I were young again, and held her in my arms. William Butler Yeats, the title of the poem, Politics. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, November the 7th, 2010. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.